2: Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wise Cracks movie podcast. Show, Show
1: me
0: the neighborhood violence, <laughs> I guess.
2: <laughs> the car Suburban crashes. violence. Show me the violence. Yeah, the car crashes. That's sweet. Yeah, well, if it bleeds, it leads, if baby. If it bleeds, it leads. What's up? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning. I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hello and we've got ryan Subfilm film fans and this week we're going to be talking about the 2014 film starring jake gyllenhaal written by dan gilroy and directed by dan gilroy i believe in his feature directorial debut uh, he's obviously well known as being a tremendous screenwriter night starring jake gyllenhaal renee russo uh riz ahmed bill paxton and uh, before we get into this, we're going to go around and kind of give our first impressions. I do want to just give a quick reminder that uh, you can give us a follow over on our Twitter at SMTM underscore POD. That's SMTM underscore POD. We've also started releasing bonus content on Patreon, so if you want to check that out, patreon.com slash wisecrack. We got merch and shit like that. You know all the admin stuff. Just if you like us, give us some love. Give us some shouts on Apple Podcasts. Give us five-star reviews or ratings, whatever it is. All that stuff so we can boost the show so more, more people can get Involved in the community. All right, let's get into first impressions. What was it like the first time we saw this film? What's it been like on repeated viewings? First thing I want to say, I didn't realize that this film was seven years old. I thought it was like two Mm -hmm. or three years old. I forgot that it was seven years ago. So one time flies, and two, for some reason, I feel like this film has just stayed in the cultural zeitgeist, like it maybe never went away. So maybe that's why I thought it was more recent. But anyway, 2014. What was it like the first time you saw it? What was it like on repeated viewings? Let's start with Ryan. Um, I love this movie so much.
0: <laughs> um, I'll just put that out there first. Uh, the first time I, I, will say that it is a very awesome uh, repeat viewing movie because the first time I saw it, I remember kind of not really going where, knowing what they were going for, which I think is part of the genius of this movie. Is uh, it's just how it's constructed. Uh, and, but then when it ended, I definitely distinctly remember going, wait, that's it. I wanted so much more. I, you know, I was just getting into where it was going, but now, uh, now when I watch it again, which is, this is probably my third or fourth time. I think it's a perfect ending and, uh, uh, and it leaves you just where, you know, it leaves you wanting more, but in the best way and kind of, and it, and it, and it does something that, you know, a lot of Hollywood movies don't is it, it's like the, the bad guy wins essentially. Uh, uh, and what does that mean? What is it? Uh, and stuff. And I hope we we'll get into all that. I, and it's great. I, I, I thought about this movie more than most movies in the last seven years. And I definitely think it, it improves on repeat viewings. This is my favorite time. I've seen it for sure. Cause I was wow. just noticing so much more, more stuff. Also, I, uh, uh, weird antidote. Like it, 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 I was walking down the street in Echo Park where I used to live, like right down to my neighborhood liquor store, and I just see Jake, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal sitting on his car, which is – they were shooting this movie. I didn't know it at the oh, time, wow. and I, had to ha- I happened to have a friend from out of town, so I'm like, wait, I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal sitting on top of that car by the liquor store. And sure enough, then we looked across the street, and we saw the camera crew. We're like, oh, shit. This is awesome. Um, and so then I was super oh, was it like when I first a little
2: cinema verite kind of film thing going on? Is that why you didn't notice it or
0: yeah, it it was like the, 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 it was not as uh, I mean I could tell that there was more people around, but I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't really put two and two together that there was a film being made until uh, you know I saw more of the uh the stuff the set anyway, uh I love this movie. What do y'all think? Raymond?
1: Um, one of my favorite films of 2014 oh. Nice. I I agree with you, Ryan. I actually have not seen this movie since I watched it in theaters. I did not rewatch it for this podcast. Um, I watched a couple of other Jake Gyllenhaal scumbag performances uh, last night. I watched Prisoners and Enemy, the Denis Villeneuve films. Um, And the reason that I didn't rewatch this one is because not necessarily not because I didn't like it. I like I said, I really enjoy it, but it, it. it, there's so much about it that just immediately burned itself onto my brain. I think the performance is wonderful. I love a movie about, um, like a little corner kind of subculture like this, yeah. where you're like, well, of course these guys are out there and you can make exactly one movie about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I always love a movie like that. And, and just everything from the performances, Renee Russo is also wonderful. Bill Paxton, rest in peace. One of my favorite actors. Um, you know great performances all around just a really solid but simple like straightforward script uh a really cool setting um all of this stuff was so so like burned onto my brain from having watched it i was like you know what i think i can just turn on the mic and talk about this fucking thing like i saw it yesterday <laughs> so i kind of want to try to do that but it's it's not out of disrespect of the movie that i didn't that i didn't watch it again i i really do genuinely love this one and uh, I'm eager to chop it up with you guys.
2: I forgot that Bill Paxton died and you just made me really sad. Oh my gosh, that's right. One of the greats, man. Fuck. I Eight, love like Bill Like Ryan said,
1: if it, if it bleeds, it leads. That's one of the great Bill Paxton lines along with, you know, uh, game over, man, and uh, the vet gets him wet from true lies. It's like when, when you need just a classic scumbag to come in and make a hell of an impression in a little <laughs> bit of time. Bill Paxton was the man. Man.
0: It bleeds it leads is like a saying from like the 1900s though, right? Yeah, like yeah, old absolutely. old newspapers.
1: Um, uh but it's it, it it is still one of those things where like when you introduce Bill Paxton as the the sort of reckless unscrupulous guy who's already sort of established himself within this ecosystem and then you have another guy come in and just like show him oh no this is how real fucking psychos do it you're (laughs) like shit Jake Gyllenhaal means business in this movie if he's out scumbagging Bill Paxton
2: yeah so this is interesting I again like like Raymond actually I saw it one time when it came out and then this was my second time seeing it And it's weird, I feel weird, because I feel like I'm going to be the one, like, I can talk about a film even if I didn't love the film. This is what I said after I watched the film. I said, that's a really interesting film. I love, like, little um, introductions, little forays into those types of subcultures, like Raymond was just saying. I haven't seen the documentary on this, but I guess there's a documentary on Nightcrawler type of dudes that, um, I guess, I don't know if it's on Netflix or what, but... Uh, some people have seen it and they've talked about it, and I was like, "Oh, see, that sounds interesting to me." So that's curious. The performances are great. the The drama is really good. The way that it builds is is fantastic. It's always moving, right? Um, and I, at the, at the end of it, I'm kind of like, "Yeah, it's a good movie. Like, it's a good it's a good movie." But I, for some reason, it doesn't just like get me super excited. Like it gets both of you guys excited, and I don't know why. Like it's got all the themes, it's got some cool concepts. I get it, uh, but for whatever reason, I'm I'm just I, I don't like love, love, love it. So I don't know. It never got to that
1: next gear for you. How dare you?
2: Yeah, I know. I, d- I don't know what to say and I don't know why. So, um, but here's the crazy thing. We're still going to be able to talk about it for an hour and I'm going to fucking oh, yeah. totally nerd out because it's got tons of cool stuff <laughs> that it's talking about, right? And then maybe by the and end of it... It's good to have differing opinions, that's you That's know? true. I'm glad that's,
1: that you don't love that, it like us. That's another aspect of this movie that I think has allowed it to stay so solid in my brain. And I, I say that and I've probably forgotten a ton of key aspects of it. But maybe one of the things for you, Austin, is that the movie is just so, like, it's so straightforward. Like, this guy is yeah, exactly who the movie says he is. Like, from from the beginning, he's a pretty uncomplicated dude. And that's one of the things I love about this is, like, there is no character arc. He is exactly the person at the end of the movie as he is at the beginning, except now he's been validated and empowered. And that's, like, one of the it's sort of, like pieces of the the magic puzzle to this for me is like it's so
2: simple so straightforward and just so
1: devastating in its
2: own way a little anecdote with um it was like the first time that dan gilroy sat down with jake gyllenhaal and, and dan gilroy was basically like you know how do you see this story um Uh, or no, Jake Gyllenhaal asked Dan Gilroy, how do you see this story? And he said, honestly, he's like, it might sound weird. He's like, but I see this as a success story. And Jake Gyllenhaal was like, that's how I see it. And they were like, ah, perfect. So now we've got the same vibe. So it's a success story, but it's a very weird kind of success story. And we'll definitely start peeling back some of those layers um, once we get through the recap here. But okay, I'm gonna do a brief recap for people who either haven't seen the film in a long time or are unfamiliar with it so they can kind of get caught up with us. All right, so... Petty thief Lou is caught stealing industrial materials by a private security guard. Lou attacks the guard and steals his watch, then sells the stolen materials to a construction boss. While there, Lou tries to get a job, but the foreman basically says, I won't hire a thief. Driving home, Lou sees a car crash and a freelance camera crew who records the events and sells the footage to a local news program. Lou gets all inspired and decides to steal a bike and pawn it for a camcorder and a police radio scanner. One night, Lou records the aftermath of a fatal carjacking. His footage, while highly unorthodox, is graphic and shows an up-close view of the violence so that the... Uh, struggling morning news station KWLA6 decides that they'd love to have it so they can boost their poor ratings. He then hires Rick to be his assistant, telling him that he's going to be an intern and get paid 30 bucks per night. So over the weeks, they've got this little partnership, and Lou starts tampering, I guess you could say, with crime scenes so that he gets better footage, making his product even more valuable. Lou then pressures the morning news director of KWLA6, Nina, to sleep with him so that they can boost their ratings by using his salacious footage. Now, when Lou's prime competitor, Joe, begins to threaten Lou's livelihood, Lou sabotages Joe's car so that it crashes, leaving Lou the only one to record the aftermath. Later, Lou and Rick arrive at the scene of a triple homicide. Lou enters the home and records the grisly scene. He also records the perpetrators getting away, but he edits out that footage. The news station wrestles with the ethics of showing this violent scene, but they proceed if they can blur out the faces and use anonymity. Lou then devises a plan, though, to intensify things even more by setting up the perpetrators to encounter police while he records the entire showdown. He then follows the suspects in a shootout and high-speed chase after they do have a run-in with the cops... Then the perps crash their SUV and Lou has Rick get out of the car to do a close recording of the crash scene, but there's a gunman inside the car who opens fire and shoots Rick, and Lou records a dying Rick while telling Rick that he had to do this because Rick was threatening Lou's leverage position. Nina is awed by this crazy footage of the events and kind of expresses her devotion to Lou, Um, The police try to confiscate the video footage, and then they also want to get a confession out of Lou, saying that he was somehow involved, but in the end, Lou gets off scot-free, and the film closes with him hiring a crew of interns to expand his business, telling them that he wouldn't have them do anything that he wouldn't do himself. Alright, now we're going to start peeling this apart, but before we do, i got to give a quick shout-out to our sponsor, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives, where you can explore projects that you are passionate about. It's why Skillshare is so friggin' cool. You can unleash your creativity and pursue passions right from the convenience of your own home. They offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics like painting, photography, drone filming, editing, classes on improving productivity, video for Instagram, photography for Instagram, how to do cool filters and stuff like that, Artivism, etc., 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 etc. So, if you want to explore your creativity and connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com/smtm. That's Skillshare.com/smtm, and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So, go to Skillshare.com/smtm, get a free trial of the premium membership, and unleash your creativity, peeps! All right. Let's chat about this. Now, y'all chuckled when I finished the little recap here. Ryan, what was that chuckle for? Which, what you thinking about this film? Is it just the batshit insanity of the film?
1: It's the perfect last line.
2: Well, well, that and uh, yeah, the perfect last
0: line. And really, what I was thinking of. Uh, is the scene a couple of scenes before that with him and him and Rene Russo's last line uh, <laughs> scene where she's just like so turned In on? Awe, it's like yeah. a very like sensual. It is scene, so sensual. You know, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. And it's just about you know him getting the most gruesome, graphic footage you know, of his friend, his seemingly best friend and partner dying. I mean, they were never friends really, but. Um, uh, yeah, that scene just rocks. You know, talk about a success story. It's like, yeah, he got the girl. He, he <laughs> has the business. He's a piece of shit, and, but, he, but he, he doesn't give a fuck, you know? And he has this just, like, Zig Ziglar. Do th- th- you know who that is? Like, this, like, kind of spokes, uh, motivational speaker person, you know? I love just how he throws uh, out these just, uh, uh, you know, cliche business startup lines almost. And... You know, in in, in another show, this guy would be a hero and stuff. But he just found the one industry that just incentivizes, you know, death and pain and violence and all this stuff. And and then him going out of his way to make it all, that all happen and him causing it. It's just a great script. Yeah, Um, he does. He does. that's That's why
2: I was laughing. Yeah, he speaks in those like it's like he just read a business manual. And speaks to people right. by using those lines throughout the entire thing, and he does say that he like studied business, took a business course, whatever. But he uses like motivational mantras, he uses like self help lines, he uses business speak. I mean, even the way that he's yeah. speaking to uh, Riz Ahmed, to Rick when he's dying, is it's all about like him challenging his leverage position. Like there is nothing human about. Jake Gyllenhaal's character about Lou at all. He is the embodiment of a certain type of hungry business ethos. And he is that in, yes. in quote unquote human form. But is totally inhuman. He's a he's a psycho. He's literally like we were we were talking about it when we were watching it last night, me and the girl, and we were like, is he is he psychotic? And I was like looking at like, you know, the characteristics of someone who is quote unquote psychotic. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has all of them. You know, lack of empathy. Well... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, I think the most
0: telling line in the movie is, uh, to to that question, is when he literally just says, like, I don't like people, basically. Right? Yeah. And is that psychotic to, or is he just, is he the most smartest person? And he's just like, you <laughs> know, I really hate people. So I'm, and I don't care about them. And I guess... Yeah, that's psychotic to <laughs> sounding to a lot of people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also he like he knows what he wants.
1: <laughs> I
0: mean, yeah, but- sociopath is that a better word?
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of indicative of how like how cutthroat you have to be in in all manner of ecosystems. And this one I think is it's once again it's such an apt environment in which to place this character because he can just take to this like a, a shark to water. Um, whereas like you, you do have that, and I love his recitation of, of all these sort of like self-help things and all these kind of mantras that he's built his entire sense of self around because you, you do get this sense that like, oh yeah, this is, this is someone who has been like hardwired to succeed but doesn't really have a clear notion of what would constitute success. Just has the, these like weird, intangible notions of, uh, of, of like what it means to hustle and grind and, and, and be a self made person or an entrepreneur and just all of this stuff that devoid of any actual like clear motivation or passion for what you're doing are just kind of weird traits. They are shark like in that it, it is, it just, like you said, Ryan, it, it incentivizes this notion of just like you have to keep moving, you have to keep consuming. Um I, I do love that he 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 finds this perfect world that is ready made for him to the point that like by the time he's quoting the different um the the different codes for the police scanner. Yeah. You you it, it comes at the end of this montage that makes it feel like because you've seen movies it makes it feel like, okay, we could have just watched a month go by in this person's life, but then you find out later that that entire montage took place in the course of like 18 hours, and he already just knows every single thing on a, on a police scanner and what, it, what each code means. Like, there is this incredible drive to him, and it's just that he, he was lacking any kind of direction for that until he realized like, oh, I can commodify death. Wonderful.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. I mean, I know that it's been highly publicized that he came in and he lost a lot of weight and that he had a sort of spirit animal, if you will, that was guiding his performance and it was the coyote, right? Like he viewed this character as being a coyote, and coyotes in LA, right, are fucking hungry. They are kind of skinny and mangy looking, and they're out there, and they're picking up the scraps, and that's kind of what he is. He has this insatiable hunger, but you can see it at the beginning, and I love how you know, in typical screenwriting classes, they talk about save the cat, right? And of course, it's the dirty secret that every screenwriter doesn't like to admit, but they all have save the cat on their bookshelves. And what's the idea in save the cat? That within like the first five pages or something like that of the script, you have the protagonist of your story do something that basically um, makes you uh, become endeared to the character. It could be like a character saving a cat. What I love about this is it's almost the exact opposite. It isn't the person saving a cat. It's beating the shit or maybe murdering a security guard and then stealing his watch. So you know exactly what you're investing in, right? You're investing in this guy, the guy that is so hungry, the guy that is so Um, desperate that he is going to attack a security guard and steal his watch and then go and sell these supplies for you know a few cents per foot or for per pound or whatever it is that he's getting the deal for and i love that urgency that kind of like i got for lack of a better term the passion that is presented to us. And maybe maybe this is why the film also is so alluring. I was sitting there at one point and I was like, "Man, this looks like a fun job." Like you just get to sit in your car and listen to the fucking radio <laughs> scanner and then all of a sudden like it's like, "Hey, we got a code, whatever, whatever." And you're like, "Boom, excitement." Like there's excitement and there's the thrill of the chase, the thrill of the hunt, right? So it makes a lot of sense that we would get caught up in his passion, in his desire to succeed, even if we're like, "Wow, this guy is a a A a shithead and it it only gets worse and worse like once the door opens he starts doing more and more and more unethical things and we're there along for the ride but there's something about I don't know his passion that kind of makes us intrigued
1: there's that great scene where it cuts in I think he's talking to Riz Ahmed where it, it cuts in on him like in the middle of one of his sort of you know emphatic motivational speeches and he says something to the effect of like uh, did you know that uh, if if you angle the camera such that you can guide the viewer's eye by line by having like vanishing yeah, yeah. points appear towards it, and it's just one of those things where, as you're saying all that, it 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 does it does bring to mind that like, you know, Bill Paxton, who's in this movie, uh, famously in Twi- Twister as well, which has some similar themes that these kind of unhinged people with cameras chasing after storms and. And you do kind of get the sense that he has not only an aesthetic fascination with the violence in this, but he also perceives it as, like, maybe an act of nature that, like, well, there's nothing exploitative about me going there and filming it. Like, those people would still be dying on their floor either way. Like, there's—I don't necessarily know that he has to do any conscious compartmentalization, because maybe he's just not that kind of person— but the the way that he approaches it and, and then when he starts talking about aesthetic and then when he starts practicing aesthetic within the crime scenes, you do kind of have this sense that like maybe this guy just doesn't really... He may not be malicious. He just probably doesn't understand the connection between like moving the picture on the fridge and the body that's going cold on the floor behind him. Like those those two things aren't connected in his mind other than like, Oh, look, a good shot. Like, that's kind of the thing that's, you know, the movie clearly presents him as someone who's, who is malicious. And he does things that are openly malicious, but they're all, there are all kinds of indications throughout the movie that, like, he may just, his brain may not be wired to function on that level where he perceives these things as actually bad.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, you know... People uh, that are kind of antisocial, I feel like, have this problem where <laughs> it's not a problem, but it's just kind of like like you're so uh, what is it right brained <laughs> to where you're like uh, you're thinking through your emotions almost, you know, and you kind of have to come to these conclusions. So he's he's just. He's not somebody that's really feeling anything, you know. He's so he's having to think through it, and then he becomes this purely transactional individual because uh, he because at the end of the day, at somewhere along the way, he decided he hates people, you know. So that, that, that that's why I th- uh, the, the movie, I to me, is clearly saying he is a this malicious person, almost like the devil that. Uh, uh, yeah (laughs) okay let's read
2: let's read this is from uh, a website called Psychiatric Times the title of the article is The Hidden Suffering of the Psychopath from 2014 by Dr. Willem H.J. Martins okay uh psychopathy is characterized by diagnostic features such as superficial charm I'm gonna say check high intelligence I'm a high intelligence check poor judgment yeah. and failure to learn from experience. I don't know. Maybe um, pathological egocentricity check uh, in inca- incapacity for love. Maybe we don't know lack of remorse or shame check uh, impulsivity. I'm going to say check grandiose sense of self-worth check pathological lying check manipulative behavior check i mean it seems like if these are the characteristics then this dude is down the line checking a lot of those boxes of of psychopathy right
1: I'm, I'm not in the uh, i'm not in the business of handing out armchair diagnoses but yes going going down the subject of this show like is raymond with, with a fictional <laughs> character seems seems relatively devoid of risk i, I will say i didn't I didn't think he was a, a a pathological liar. Are you telling me he didn't actually ride the Tour de France on that bike or whatever,
2: <laughs> whatever his insane statement was? <laughs> and he was like, okay, let me won, ask you this. I at, won the marathon on this bicycle. At what point does it go from kind of morbid curiosity to like actual unethical? Is it the moment like in my mind, it's the moment when he drags the body so that he can get the better frame. Like, is that the moment where it really turns and, and he starts to... Really tamp, like he tampers with the scene when he moves the picture up on the fridge, but that kind of seems harmless. It's it's like he's trying to dramatize what he's getting, which is actually a kind of like good filmmaking move if you think about it. Sure, but, yeah, this but, movie's but, a great movie about filmmaking. Yeah, it, it, it actually it actually is. It actually is. So when when does it change from him being a budding filmmaker to him being uh, an unethical potentially psychopath?
0: I mean the when he's cutting the fucking brakes to the to the mm-hmm. van is when yeah, it goes that's... from like he has just you know before it was just slightly unethical and now it's it's you know he's a, a murderer essentially <laughs> or he doesn't care about their lives and and then uh, so yeah I, that I moment. actually
1: I remember thinking that the the moment when he moves the the picture on the fridge is like him crossing the Rubicon in a way and not that he would perceive it as such but it's it's one of those things that like you know every time you watch Planet Earth or one of those documentaries where like and now the baby elephant has gotten lost from its herd sadly we cannot do anything to save its life yeah (laughs) yeah yeah you know it is and I'm always just sitting there like come on man you guys could have helped that baby elephant but it is there is like this sort of you know oath or whatever uh, the the like uh Good documentarians Samaritan? oath to, to, well, no, to not, oh to not, to, to not interfere with nature, you know, to, to let it run its course and to simply document it. Like you, you are not here to affect it in any way. And kind of looking through it, through that lens, it is one of those things where like, yes, is anyone directly hurt by him moving that, uh, on the fridge to get a better frame? Not necessarily, but it, it very clearly diminishes, uh, like the suffering that these people experienced, for him to for him to do that so so callously or with such disregard, and I think that is not necessarily where he crosses the line, but that is the point at which I I for one am am clear that like there maybe just are no lines for this person because he doesn't yeah I, as far as I recall he doesn't really even hesitate to do that it's just yeah. like oh yeah decent frame better frame
2: Yep. Yeah. here's what I would okay I thought of a few I thought of a bunch of things I was reminded of remember the final couple episodes of Seinfeld when they get arrested for seeing somebody getting <laughs> yes. attacked but and they not, just and laugh and they get arrested because good of Samaritan. the good the good Samaritan law right or whatever. And I was thinking a little bit about that and then I was thinking a lot about how, okay, so in our culture today, everybody has cell phones and just think that why do we have so much cell phone footage of fights that break out? Well, it's because they see people start to get testy and then everyone immediately is like, ooh, 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 I'm going to get this because it's going to be exciting and, uh, and, and salacious and I can put it up online later. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, but cameras have also let us record things that are atrocious and that's great and hold certain people that would have otherwise been unchecked to some measure of accountability, right? So there's that as well, but there's also this like... Isn't it fun that I can record this and send it to a friend, but what you're recording is somebody getting the shit kicked out of them, or you're hoping, and this is what I think is maybe even worse, when you pull out that camera because people start to get a little pushy, you're hoping that it pops off and you catch something really crazy right? You're hoping that you catch a, sh- a shark attack. You're hoping that you catch a fight in the bar. You're hoping that you catch a helicopter fall out of the sky. Like there, And it's that impulse that I think is really interesting that this film kind of talks about because not only is Jake Gyllenhaal recording it, but he's creating a culture on the news that allows audiences like us to become Excited and enthralled by and seduced by and it's the seduction of seeing the violence that I think maybe then what this film could be saying is that what this does is it contributes to a culture of the sort of like fetishization or glamorization of violence and then, and then without giving us a clear sense of what is our ethical responsibility when we see something like is it good or okay to just record, right? I don't know. Those were things that I was thinking about. I'm I'm curious
1: off of that, Austin. What is the? I'm not sure if there's a a philosophical name for this or or what framework this would fit into. But you've I, I'm certain you've read of the phenomenon of like people witnessing acts of abuse or violence and no one doing anything because everyone assumes someone else will. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure. I, I I'm sure there's a name for it as like a phenomenon or or, or whatever. But it is, I think, you bring up Seinfeld, and yeah. there's a clear delineation between that and the characters of Seinfeld who are just making jokes about the person who's getting <laughs> shaken down by a mugger or whatever. Yeah, um, and this movie falls, I would say, firmly in the latter category. Um, that you know, this is this is someone who is not not only profiting off of other folks suffering. But is like deliberately aestheticizing and fetishizing their suffering in a way that is like, once again, because I don't think he really changes all that significantly, or or really not at all. In any other movie, it would seem like he's being desensitized to these acts of violence, when in reality, I, I don't think he ever had that muscle, like, it, you know, from the start of the movie it doesn't seem as though any of this stuff ever upsets him or that it's its never a moral quandary. You could actually take this same exact script. He didn't save the cat. <laughs> no, no. The cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. <laughs> um, but that's, that's a line from... Uh, have you seen the movie Sweet Smell of Success? With, like ages uh, ago. Uh, Tony Curtis. Um, Tony Curtis has that line. That's a very similar movie to this. It's okay. about uh, unscrupulous newspaper men. Yeah. Um, Highly recommended if uh, if you enjoyed Nightcrawler. In um, network. Oh yeah, network. Oh fuck, sure. of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, don't one hundred percent. I think uh, I lost my train of thought there. Um, <laughs> Real quick
2: in the chat. But yeah, in the chat, people are telling us it's called the bystander effect. Apparently. Oh so. sure,
1: sure. That makes sense. Okay. You know.
2: Um But you were talking about the difference. The difference between Seinfeld and and and.
1: Well, and I just, I mean, it just comes back to this thing with, with Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie, which is that like, you watch this and you, I think Seinfeld is an apt comparison because the formula in sitcoms is always that like, no matter what the characters learn, or at least in early sitcoms before everything was serialized in the way that it is now, or at least that's the tendency in a lot of shows now, but in older sitcoms, the rule is essentially that like, whatever happens in this episode these characters are going to start back at square one for the next episode. They'll learn the same lessons a thousand times and fundamentally they never change because we don't want to serialize an an emotional arc. We want these things to play in syndication. You should be able to turn on any one episode and enjoy it as it is. And I think that it's so rare that a movie is made like that Mm. where a character is just put front and center who has absolutely... once again from the beginning of the movie has absolutely no no compunction about any of this stuff and by the end of the movie is just rewarded for it. And I think you could make this movie with a different actor who would bring more subtlety and nuance to it and who would hesitate before they do those ugly things. And you could take this exact same script and make it about someone who's just slowly subsumed by this ecosystem. But I I think it's very, very special that like... No, this is this is what you make movies about. It's about the the exceptional moment in an exceptional person's life. Like Mm. that's what is so exciting about a film like this. And it it makes you wonder, like, are we doing all movies wrong? Not that every movie should be about sociopaths, but like, do people really change that much in the course or over the course of like an hour and a half worth of life events? Who knows? Mm.
0: Well, a, a, and uh, it had the same vibe of the ending of like a Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, we talk about that on this show Certainly. all the time. How how is it more of a? Is the whole thing a cautionary tale? And and kind of did it, uh, the whole uh, environment What is it? Uh, help me out. It's like like is it your environment or nature versus, versus nurture? Or yeah, nature nurture, yeah. versus nurture. Yeah, which we've also talked in this about on this show or not. Did did. did Kind of what you were just describing, did this weird world change him or did he come in mm. and, you know, uh, take it over? And uh, uh, I like, yeah, I, 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 I wish there was more movies that ended on a pretty ambiguous note, I would say, where you're kind of like left to chew on what the the, the filmmakers were, uh, were, were are trying to tell you, you know, by the fact that this pretty terrible person ends up seizing the day
2: yeah I think this whole nature versus nurture argument is is always like really uh, like fraught terrain and one of the things that's so interesting is it's probably both right like I think it's always actually both both and is I'm gonna get it fucking tattooed on my hands Um, but he's kind of a shitty dude but the environment nourishes his shittiness. So you could think of him as having like potential to grow into a monster and maybe that potential is in a lot of us, right? And that's why there is a Mm -hmm. sense why you have to create environments that foster ethics and care, right? Like how many people supported the Nazi party because they were in conditions that um, allowed them to align with these ideals that maybe if they were born in a different time and a place, they wouldn't have. I'd love to say that no, nobody would um, if they just had their ethical hat screwed on, right? And there were many people that fleed, right? There were many people that fleed for ethical reasons, and that's fucking great. But it's also difficult to just kind of like pat ourselves on the back and say, we surely would have always been enlightened no matter the situations. You know, I'd like to fucking think that we would, but that's not always the case, right? So there is definitely a sense in which the environment impacts, it fosters, it nourishes, it feeds, it waters us so that we flower in particular directions. Could this character, had he been nurtured in different ways, gone down a route that would have been what we might call more ethical? like? Sure, I think that that's highly likely impossible because he's desperate, right? And the desperation needed to be dealt with because there was some desire that wasn't being met. But this industry and this set of opportunities allowed him to find some sort of alleviation, if you will, of that lack or that complaint. And so he was able to attach himself to certain things. And that might be, you know, yeah, yeah, go ahead. See, I would
0: argue that he wasn't necessarily desperate like that, that no matter what his circumstances is, he's going to be trying to manipulate them and, you know, against either the law or against any sort of normal ethics or morals. Like, Mm. I think that he's just a inherently bad guy. And that's kind of, I think, part of the, what the movie's maybe saying too, is that just are some people beyond redemption is, could this guy ever be talked into,
2: uh, you know, what we're talking about or is it just uh i I uh, think uh, that nobody's beyond redemption ryan i I might well i I might not be a christian i might not be a christian anymore but i still believe in the power of the lord the non the non-existent lord to change people
0: (laughs) (laughs) amen
1: well you 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 said the words like inherently bad or inherently evil and i do think you know uh, austin you're kind of goofing around but i do think that begs the question of like Is there such a thing as inherent evil or is this a person who is not necessarily evil but just largely apathetic towards the world and uh, lacking in empathy and devoid of uh, some greater conscience or better angels? Like he wasn't, you know, he was a petty thief before he assaulted a person. um, And for all we know, that may just be because that's the only way that he can feed himself or that's the only way that he... He can perceive yeah. uh, achieving some economic egress. But go with me on how this. I mean, he? I'm not, like, I'm I'm old not sure. He,
2: like, how old is he at the start uh, of the film? 30s? Late 20s? I mean,
1: he's, he's Jake Gyllenhaal's age, I guess. You know, yeah, it's, so- uh, like, I don't think they ever make too much a point of it. But whether, whether it's late 20s, early 30s, or whatever,
2: you know, he... He clearly, he clearly. Twenty-something years of conditioning already, right? And and yeah, had he, 100%. and he's a loner. We don't know what's up with his family. Why is he living in this apartment? And there's this one point, you know, when he's watching that thing, he turns to look like there's somebody there, and he looks like, oh shit, did you see that? But there's nobody there. So there's also something about the lonely environment in which he has been thrown that kind of, you know, creates certain flows or patterns or habits that he's going to continue to follow down.
1: Um, someone in the chat just said uh, Kevin Abagnale uh, just said he he's kind of like Heisenberg from uh, Breaking Bad. I, uh. I think that's an apt comparison. I think um, uh, Brian Cranston goes on a bit more of a, a, a clearly defined journey, um, but I think there is something telling at the end of Breaking Bad that would absolutely apply to uh, to Lou Bloom as well. That when he's explaining to his wife at the end, where he kind of finally drops the facade and says, you know, this is something that I was good at and I liked it. And mm. that I mean that could that could be just as revealing of uh, of Jake Gyllenhaal in this film that this is this is something that uh, it's it, it's a job that kind of like thrives in that moral gray area and it's something that he's good at and he found it or it more appropriately kind of found him and it's just something that he likes and that fits fits his specific emotional palette in a way that it is. Uh, maybe a, a little bit enabling in the wrong directions. And it's like, you know, this, this is someone who clearly has no compunction about breaking the law at the beginning of the movie. So what is a gray area to him when he's already, he's already existed outside, like clearly outside of the defined boundaries of the law. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it It is weird to see him like regressing in a way by uh, assimilating into society. Like it's, that That's something I, that just now kind of occurred to me, is that like, he was better off just being a thief. <laughs> like, it seemed like he
2: was less of a monster when he was just being a thief. Yeah, just stealing some fucking fencing and copper and stuff like that and beating up a security guard every now and then. Um, what do we think about Rene Russo's character Nina and the news station and their responsibility? Because they do have those ethical conversations. You've got the one guy that is kind of like clearly against this kind of stuff. You've got Nina who, again, her, she's desperate. She's hungry, right? She's kind of a mirror image of Jake, but just in a different social status, in a different socioeconomic place, right? But she's desperate and hungry because they need to boost their ratings. She's been at, what is it, every two years, she bounces to a new station. Is that because she's not performing well enough? Um, Is that because she kind of is like nomadic herself? She's always looking for the the next kill and she can't actually establish something that's long lasting, that's deep, that's mean, whatever. So there's a sense in which they're praying off of uh and then oh, and then there's there's of course this code that's like uh we can't we can't go videotape something at sixth and rampart because that's not the kind of people that they want to show on the news. But when it's a white middle class family, upper middle class family, yeah, that's what we want to show on the news. So what exactly is going on here like what are they selling and and how are they preying on the audience's vulnerabilities and the audience's desperation as well it's desperation on the side of Lou desperation on the side of Nina needing to boost ratings and then our desperation for what Um, are they stoking a fear are they creating a fear are they creating a narrative and a fantasy that is kind of like a fairy tale like ooh the boogeymen come out at night so look at what these like if you're white and middle class be careful the bad guys are out there to get you like what what's going on there as well
0: to me uh her she has the most interesting she's the only one with a real character arc you know and it's the reverse of how he would want it she literally like is becoming more like jake gyllenhaal as the movie goes on even though she is in the moral gray area at the beginning but she even has boundaries that she's like look we can't do this uh, you know even though uh, uh the other people in her team really don't um want to push the boundaries but even there's some stuff that Jake Gyllenhaal would do that she's not into. But then by the end of the movie, you can tell she's just smitten with him. And I think that, you know, her and the, uh, to borrow a phrase, her and the station are like, represent society, I think, and how we can just, uh, how, that you can, like, like it's the parts of society that can incentivize somebody like Jake Gyllenhaal, the worst, you know, among us, and then reward them. Uh, uh, And there's, you know, several of those out there. But then she becomes so into it that it's almost like uh, uh, about the attraction to that kind of world. Like, oh, yeah. if I just don't care about people, look what all I can accomplish. Oh, my God. You know, or it, it, pretty much. And
1: I can't remember. Do they talk about why she get, got bounced from station to station? Was it just like chasing ratings? She's just not good. And- and she she's just underperforming but i i think there's also you you can't ignore the the meta context in this film which is that like a renee russo phenomenal actor she is married to dan gilroy i'm pretty sure they're still together um and within this movie much like in the television industry the film industry women are are uh, very unfairly undervalued um they they are not given the same opportunities, the same uh, second chances when they fail, or given the, uh, the same amount of time to breathe that uh, maybe a mail station manager would. And there is this notion that like they have this kind of symbiotic relationship, that she sees him not only as like a meal ticket, but as this sort of portal into a world that has been kind of inaccessible to her. Hmm. Rather, or, or either because she she doesn't really have, like, the fortitude to be a stringer herself, or because uh, she's been working so hard and chipping away at, like, establishing herself within the ecosystem that we find her Um but, she was a reporter that was kind of that that in her old days
0: like out outgrew the reportership, kind of like what you're saying. I think that she got too old to be okay. like you know the, the, the field reporter, the, you or know, high young reporter, and stuff. And now she's a producer that's just been uh, failing. Anyway, sorry to.
1: Oh no, no, I appreciate that because that was an aspect of her backstory that I didn't remember. Um, but that also feeds into the notion of like. She's she's someone who is past her prime in an industry that in like mm. incentivizes and prioritizes youth and conventional standards of beauty, and it, and may be one of those like legacy figures within this industry that like, well, you know, she she was a decent reporter, but she aged out of that, and now we just feel too sorry for her to cut the strings, so she's getting shuffled around from like uh, station to station, what have you. And I, I do really like this notion that he represents not only, like, some some sort of encapsulation of her past and her history in the field, but he also represents just, like, new energy and youth yeah. and vibrancy. Even if it's, yeah. like, the ugliest kind of vibrancy, there is still an undeniable energy when he enters the room that she responds to. It is such a wonderful performance by Rene Russo.
2: Yeah, let's talk a little bit the about... The life of Dan Gilroy. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Rick's character, too, because um, I think there's something really important. Like, one, I think the performance from Riz Ahmed is, is absolutely amazing. His vulnerability, again, I'm going to use the word, desperation. When he first comes into that cafe for the job interview, you can tell how desperate he is for a job to make a little bit of money. He's, uh, And I think that the way that that Riz Ahmed plays this character, there's also a softness to him. Um, you know, there's there's a softness in his desperation, which is kind of countered by the coldness of Jake Gyllenhaal's desperation, right? Um, Jake Gyllenhaal's much more calculated. Riz Ahmed definitely has a little bit of a, a hesitancy, maybe a vulnerability. But I think what's so interesting is, again, you have somebody who needs something, and who is being pulled along by somebody in a position of power that is dangling the carrot, the carrot of success, the character of growth, the character of money right that is going to be able to pull him out of whatever his shitty situation is and so he goes along with it even if he doesn't fully dig it right like he may not fully love what he's doing there do seem to be moments of hesitancy that he's questioning what should we be doing should we be doing this or not um but it's it's he's enticed he's seduced by the system so to speak with gyllenhaal being the representative the system boss and it kind of pulls him along and i just think that it's something really kind of Um, I, there's something, one, I think, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not enticing, but just so engaging about the performance that I think really accentuates that, that relational dynamic between those two. So.
1: Yeah. He he's, he's wonderful at that. You you said that that soft desperation, that's a beautiful way to put it. There's, there's a kind of like, resolution towards decency, even in desperation. I think he's phenomenal at that. That's like one of the best tools in his belt. If you've, if you've never seen Sound of Metal, I, I would say maybe, maybe my favorite movie of last year. Um, and he's, it, it's that his character's kind of defined by that sense of just like trying to work through a, an impossible moment in his life and, and not lose a sense of who he is. Um, but with regards to uh, his relationship with uh, Gyllenhaal in this there there is a very nice kind of hot and cold, and you do get the sense that it, 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 as is so often the case, Riz Ahmed is kind of pulled into this thing out of necessity, um, and uh, as is so often the case in uh, inherently unethical systems, you know, he there there is there, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, you know, he cannot participate in the system without giving over some part of himself in a way that is like, well, yeah, it implicates everyone. Like there is, there there is no way to escape from this. You can, you can come into it with the best of intentions and you can try to be a decent person throughout and try to maintain some sense of resolve. But just by participating in this, you are, you are exploiting suffering. And and like, you have to recognize that like, that's what's putting the food on the table for you. and it, and And that is something that like, has to weigh pretty heavy on his shoulders.
2: Mm. Ryan, what do you think about Rick and Riz Ahmed more generally?
1: I mean,
0: uh, (laughs) I just love the power dynamics between him and Lou, right? Because Lou, and talk about exploiting someone. It's like he obviously could have waited for a better candidate probably for this job, but he saw, he kind of saw mark on on the is just like yes this guy needs this i can tell how desperate he is because like you said he just exudes it in his job interview at the diner uh and then and then he offers him what some low ball like 30 dollars a night uh thing and he knows he's probably gonna end up taking that and at first he tries to offer him nothing yeah so like like there's something to be you know that that he's definitely uh uh yeah, like you said, it's 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 capitalism to its logical conclusion in a way. Um, and uh, uh, he's and, and Lou is just playing like, it's funny to watch Lou play this boss of this startup company, which is essentially <laughs> yeah. him in a car with a police scanner <laughs> in a and shitty a shitty car. Uh, yeah.
2: pawn shop uh, uh, fi- uh, thing. Like, I don't know, there's something to be said for that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really sad to dynamic.
2: later when, when Rick starts to be like, hey, you know, can I get a raise? And uh, Lou's like, yeah, of course. And at first, you can hear that Rick is about to say, you know, how about a hundred, a hundred a night? And he, then he switches to seventy-five because he thinks he's asking for too yeah. much. And he says seventy-five, <laughs> and immediately Lou's like, yeah. And then he goes, I could have gotten more, couldn't I? And he's like, absolutely. And you're like, you're a fucking that cracks me up. yeah, like fuck you, dude. And then he says, well, then can I get more? And he's like, not now. He's like, D-d-d-d-d-d-d. and he's like, we gotta go do our thing. Like you fucked up. You had a chance, and I would have easily paid you a hundred tonight but you wussed out and because you wussed out you have to deal with the consequences now and it's so fucked up it's like um it's almost like he's a dad like trying to teach business he does this a lot there's another scene where they're getting into a car and i can't remember but he's talking about like economic principles or something like that and it's always like he's trying to teach as well right he like takes this position where he feels like he feels like he's in a position of um being an instructor all the time but who the fuck is he he's just a dude who has read some books and maybe taken some classes, and he's learning on the fly. I mean, I, I would argue,
0: though, that a lot of what he is saying is, like, not bad advice in a normal context, right? It's just that he's, <laughs> he's doing it in such a—A, a, for immoral reasons, you know, uh, to do with his job, but then also, uh, uh, yeah, like you're saying— uh, even if it's true that yes, you could have gotten more money, you don't say that to somebody's face because it's just rude, <laughs> right? You know, at the yeah. end of the day. But it's just like yes, I agree. You know, like 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 he, it's he's not wrong. He could have gotten more money, but no, you can't have it. So he's not lying to
1: him at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's he's oh, distressingly ahead. straightforward throughout the movie. There's throughout, the right. scene where he's telling Rene Russo, like, I want to do things that I want to do, not like last time. And you're just yeah. like, all right, well, I mean, he has the gumption to ask, I guess. But sorry, Austin, you were going to wrap up.
2: No, no, I was going to say, let's do this. Like Ryan said earlier, and I've seen a couple of people in the chat say that this is a film about filmmaking. Can we talk a little bit oh, yeah. about this? Now, I guess Dan Gilroy explicitly said that. Um, That it's about like cutting your teeth as a filmmaker. What does this film, we have a lot of filmmakers that listen to us, I mean all three of us are to whatever varying degrees filmmakers, right? So what does this film say? What does it teach us? And maybe is it critically commenting about um, with regards to filmmaking?
0: Well uh, uh, not only is it cool with all the cameras and stuff like just all these lo-fi weird Cameras that he's using and whatever, but the it's it's about editing more so than uh, to me than anything else, Mm. which is something I deal with every day, you know. And I mean, I'm. A lot of what I'm editing is, yeah, people having conversations, and I can, at the end of the day, make them say whatever I want to. I can cut together Mm. things from other parts of the conversation and kind of just be like, well, that's more interesting. That's not at all what they said, but it will – it's, at the end of the day, more entertaining, which, you know, uh, or gets more clicks, blah, blah, blah. And what is that – what is your responsibility and all that? And it's very tempting to want to make it more entertaining, uh, uh, even though it's not the truth. And and there's just uh, I find that whole thing fascinating. And sometimes I think there's no r- r- right answer. Uh, obviously, with when you're dealing with real people and real situations and real tragedies and stuff, and you're doing it as callously as as jake gyllenhaal in the movie i mean that's pretty to me uh, bluntly like uh them saying don't do this
1: <laughs> you know but
0: uh yeah what what do, what do y'all take about uh filmmaking
1: well um there's the obvious level that you brought up that it, he, he is quite literally a filmmaker um you know it may be more of the verite style than uh, <laughs> uh than dan gilroy <laughs> yeah um, yeah but you know film as a medium is one of uh, manipulating time and space in order to further manipulate emotion and i think that that's what this entire movie is about like like i mentioned earlier there there is a a, a frenetic degree or a frenetic aspect to this editing and and the the way that he plays with uh, sort of the basics of filmmaking and your expectations thereof to make you think that more time has passed than really has. Like when in reality we're just watching the birth of a monster in real time, essentially. Um, and yeah, I, I I think there is a clear communication in this film, an explicit communication between um, between filmmaker and audience on screen. Um, and as someone who has worked in in independent movies for uh, for a while now uh, i mean my entire adult life i can't tell you how many times i've heard some version of that final speech at the uh, the end of the movie that you referenced ryan where people say you know oh don't don't worry you know if it wasn't safe we wouldn't ask you to do it and it's like well okay but uh, you're asking this actor to be a stunt person today and that's not what they're trained to do and there, there's all kinds of stuff that happens especially in the independent world that uh is extraordinarily reckless, and regardless of uh, the level of filmmaking independent or studio um, you're you're always dealing with the same tools I, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast like cooking requires heat, filmmaking requires camera, and you know in the most explicit fashion we're seeing
2: we're seeing that happen on screen in this Final thoughts, Ryan. What do we think about Nightcrawler? You said you love this script, and I felt like that was with a capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E. What do you think?
0: Uh, My final thoughts are, uh, yeah, I wish we had more movies where uh, that were character studies on the bad guy, and he wins at the
2: end, Mm. (laughs) and uh, for better or worse... It was fun. Why do you think I don't – capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E. Why do you think I didn't love it in that way? What is it? Like it's a good movie and I'm clearly excited talking about it. What do you think – like could you see why someone might not be like, ah!
0: Yeah, and and kind of like I said at the beginning, my first time I watched it, I did not capital L-O-V-E love it. Like I I was like I liked a lot of that stuff, but I honestly didn't – it went over my head, I think, at the the first time. But then the but then the more, uh, especially with Wisecrack, we did. I think we've done other. We've talked about it before. And uh, especially when you're when you're cutting scenes from a movie, you're like, oh, and just rewatching it and kind of seeing what he's doing. Um, yeah, it's intellectually a very smart movie when you break it all down. But maybe the first time you watch it, especially when it ends to me very abruptly mm. after there's not much action in the film. Then there's one very intense scene, you know, that's a sequence at the end. Yeah. And then it and then it, 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 it it ends uh, all of a sudden with Jay, Jake Gyllenhaal having a fleet of, of Vans. You're like, what? Yeah. Um, I, also, then oh, I love it. Anyway, that's it. Oh.
1: My, I think, Austin, one of the things for you that maybe you hold this at arm's length is it, two reasons. One is that I, I I, have come to know you as a pretty soulful dude. And uh, two, I think with your movies, you like a lot to chew on and a lot to turn over in your head after the movie is over. And I think this has that to some degree. Like we may, you know, for the last hour have talked about what his, his motivations are, whatever. But with this movie... uh. I, I I mean he more or less comes out and says exactly who he is, so there's as much as we've talked about it. There's not a whole lot for us to really glean from it. And uh, to the first point, I I don't know 100 percent that he has a soul. So I just think it may it it may be just like right in the narrow corridor of movies that miss you for those yeah. specific reasons. It's yeah,
2: just... you just hit something that made me feel. You know what this film is. This film is very technical. And in its delivery and in its execution, both of the form and of the content, whereas I think I might be more attracted to things that are a little bit more poetic, like something like The Green Knight or A Hidden Life, you know, those types of films. This
1: very representational.
2: Yes. Whereas those films are a bit more evocative, and for me, maybe that's what it was. It just left me feeling a little stale afterwards. You know, kind of like a I, lot of a think... Fincher films. Fincher films are all so good, and none of them ever make me be like, "Oh my God, I I I feel alive," or "I'm I'm 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 stimulated or inspired." I'm always like, "Cool." I just. <laughs> I saw some really amazing filmmaking and great acting, and it's a great story, and there's a lot of cool stuff there, but I'm never like, ah, praise Jesus after I watch those films.
1: <laughs> I, there, this movie comes in a moment where Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, was really in the pocket. I, I mentioned a couple of his other sort of scuzzy performances from this era um, uh, that he did with Denny Villeneuve. And I, I, Austin, I really think you would like Enemy, the the Denny. I've never seen Enemy. Where he, I
2: loved Prisoners, but plays, I didn't see Enemy. Yeah, he plays two
1: characters in that. One is uh, a history professor who kind of starts the movie with a monologue about Hegel, and then the other one is this doppelganger that he discovers uh, when he rents a movie and sees him on screen as a background actor. And then the universe starts to kind of unravel from there. I think that would be one that, that you would really have a lot to chew on.
2: I also really love the Jake Gyllenhaal of Sunday in the Park with George, which if any of you are Steven Sondheim fans and musical theater fans such as myself, just give it a little Google and you can hear him. Who knew that Jake Gyllenhaal also had the voice of a Broadway angel? Check it out I'm going to briefly dip into the mailbag just so that we can kind of get in there. We had some really great emails. We had one amazing email. I just got to give a shout to Dylan. I'm not going to read it now, but we're going to probably read this later. It's about capitalist realism in the film Snowpiercer, comparing Bong Joon-ho's films. Um, We're not going to talk about that one now, but I think we're going to put that one in our pockets and get to it at some point in the future, maybe on a Patreon episode where we can kind of address uh, a bunch of emails that are kind of backlogged, but I do just briefly a very simple one from Ivan, who basically asks this about Pan's Labyrinth: What do we think that the pale man represents? Well, we didn't talk about the pale man and the pale man scene that much last week, um, except for the performance, right? What What the hell? I actually wondered that too. Like, what is going on in there, and why the fruit? Why the temptation to eat them? Like, what's going on in the pale man scene?
1: I do, you, Ryan. Do you have some thoughts, or do you want me to take it?
2: I don't even remember that. I, w- I didn't
0: watch that movie. you <laughs> you uh, never seen it. It's the,
2: the monster with the eyes and the hands and
0: Oh no, no. Oh, I've seen the movie. It's just it's been forever. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. So, you go for Raymond.
1: Um, I'll try and keep this brief. So, the pale man is framed and situated within a set that is virtually identical to the banquet set that we see the fascist serving all of his uh, all of his compatriots at earlier in the film. So, that entire table and set is designed specifically to mirror that, that the Pale Man is an extension of the fascist horrors through which Ophelia is living. Also, Doug Jones plays both the fawn and the Pale Man. Uh, I believe in kind of a, uh, uh, some sort of recognition that the Pale Man is an extension of the fawn's challenges, that it may be the fawn himself, you know, two of the um, two of the fairies, or rather the two fairies that the Pale Man consumes in a, in a nod to, um, uh, what is it, uh, Saturn devouring his young. Um, those two fairies are back at the end of the movie, circling the fawn. Like, it's, it's all played as this sort of, once again, this kind of magic magical, realistic uh, sort of environment in which she finds herself that not only mirrors uh, the above-ground world uh, quite fittingly, but also serves as um, uh, an extension of those themes that the the fantasy with which Ophelia is engaging is no more ridiculous or fantastic than the fantasies in which the adults are engaged uh, that we discussed at length with Michael last week. Um, that is a little bit of what del Toro talked about. Um, and also one of the things that a lot of people, I just want to get this out, a lot of people don't like that Ophelia eats a grape on her way out when she's explicitly been told not to. But there are two things about that. One, she's fucking starving and there's this beautiful food right in front of her. And two, a moment before she disobeys the fairy and she's rewarded for it by pulling the knife out of the correct Mm. uh, little cubby hole. And so in that moment, she's kind of been primed to think like, well, disobedience is something that's paid off for me quite recently. Mm. You know, who's really going to notice if I take a couple of grapes. Really good. But anyway, I I love Fans Lab.
2: Yeah, ditto. Okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, if you have thoughts, questions, commentary, anything like that that you want to offer up to us, please, you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. You can also call us, and you can leave us a voicemail with your thoughts at one 534 8807 That's one 534 8807 I do want to give a shout-out. I believe next week we're going to be watching The Bird. Birdcage, fucking the birdcage. Now, oh, was nice. that one of y'all's choices? Did one of you choose that we talk about the birdcage?
1: No, I thought we had we had a guest lined up who had requested the
2: birdcage. That sounds that sounds great. I I have seen this movie once, and I yeah I remember I absolutely freaking loved it. Rest in peace to uh, Robin Williams. Um, so and Mike Nichols and and Mike Nichols. That's right. So uh, we're gonna be watching nice, the birdcage. And then um, also I uh, want to give a shout out to remember that we also have another Wisecrack podcast that you can check out called Culture Binge. It comes out every other week. Culture Binge. It's Michael and crew and they're always talking about what's hot or what's not hot in contemporary culture and tearing that madness apart. All right. Let's get out of here. Where can people find you on the Internet, Raymond?
1: Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Stop by, say hi. I love to talk
2: about movies. And Ryan ryan shorts youtube and instagram and twitter uh come find me comedy videos yeah 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 and i'm austin hayden you can find me anywhere twitter insta etc etc again find us on our own twitter account the show me the meaning official twitter account smtm underscore pod that's smtm underscore pod the birdcage next week also check out culture culture binge we love you ryan send us out of here brother
0: Goodbye from Hollywood, California, or Los Angeles, where Nightcrawler was filmed. This has been Show Me the Meeting!